Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that we open season two with Professor Michael McDumper. Mick is a professor in Middle East politics at the University of Exeter, and is the author of a large number of works about Jerusalem, but also in recent time about holy cities in conflict. Now, it's hard here to mention all of the various works, but certainly one work that influenced my own research and approach to Jerusalem is Jerusalem Unbound, published in 2014, about geography, history, and the future of the Holy City. Uh, in more recent times, as I said, uh, Professor Dampe published works about uh, holy cities. So I just want to mention here contested holy cities in the urban dimension of religious conflicts and fresh out of press. Uh, power, piety, and people, the politics of all cities in the 21st century. So today, rather than looking back at history, we're going to talk about the current politics of Jerusalem, the position of Jerusalem, the conflict, all the places, and uh, why not? Maybe the future. In the meantime, Mick, welcome. Hi, nice to see you again, Roberto. It's good to be here. Now, I want to mention to all of the listeners that uh, a long, long time ago, Professor Damper had been my uh, PhD examiner. So I always look at his work and him with some sort of this uh, respect and also aura of a bit of fear, to be honest. But uh, today, uh, obviously, I have to move forward and I cannot, but I have to ask the usual question that I ask to all of my guests. Mick, what is your Jerusalem? In other words, what is your connection with a city? Well, I, I come from a religious background. My father was a priest in the Anglican Church and uh, became a bishop. And so Jerusalem pervades sort of our daily life and uh, is in our, in, our, in our prayers and our rit rituals um, around you know, Christmas and Easter. And so it is always very present even before I, I visited the city. Um, I wouldn't say that I remain particularly religious. I sort of my my uh, faith uh, sort of faded, but I always retained an interest in the places that I had read about uh, during my childhood. And and so when I finally, uh, as a backpacker in 1977, I was a second year student. So I visited the city. I was amazed. Uh, I was amazed at its modernity because I had biblical images of, of the city. But I was also amazed at its diversity. I did not expect so much um, contrasting uh, identities, uh, not only uh, different religious groups, but within those different groups, um, 
expressions of modernity and there's a, a lot of expressions of retrospection and and and, and nostalgia for the past and um, then you know you had the modern city with, with with cars and boulevards and ring roads and then you had the very ancient winding streets of, of the old city with uh, a very um, long-standing traditional relationships between you know shopkeepers and their, their neighborhood and and the position of people um, in the lower end echelons of society with the, the the elite and those you could see in the way that uh, was represented by the many of the the clergy and their relationships with, with the, the people on the streets so was, you know my first visit was fascinating and then um, after uh, being involved in political activism during a while as a student and um, after I left university I worked as in various aid agencies uh, in in the city and ended up working for a Palestinian aid, aid agency called the Welfare Association. And they asked me to uh, look at the city of Jerusalem uh, and to see how some of the ancient religious endowments, uh, the wakf, the wakfs of Jerusalem, how they could be kind of revitalized for community development. So I spent a wonderful three years uh, going around the old city of Jerusalem, taking photographs, uh, interviewing people, trying to understand how the city functioned on the, on the street, on the grass, grassroots level, how people were using these buildings and what were the problems they were encountering in trying to uh, build up uh, some sort of community and some sort of um, uh, resistance to the changes that were taking place as a, as a result of the Israeli occupation in 1967. So that then led me to think about PhDs because I had lots of material and then you know uh, after some time I, I got a PhD and uh, carried on my work on Jerusalem. Um, then the you know in the 90s with the peace process they needed people who understood the city as sort of uh, researchers in the background and I got involved in a lot of the track two um, discussions between Israelis and Palestinians uh, through think tanks and various research centers um, and so I mean I can talk about that more if you want but um, uh, that sort of kind of got me really involved in some of the frontline issues and uh, sort of witnessing some of the struggles that both sides were having in trying to accommodate the concerns of the other side. The, my engagement in Jerusalem was rooted in religious sort of uh, beginnings and then rooted in a sort of historical understanding of how the city worked. Uh, and th then I found some expression for using that expertise in the the, the, the current the political uh, challenges that were were being discussed at the time. This is fascinating, particularly the way you got to Jerusalem. But I want to move to talk about politics because that's very much your work. And um, nowadays, obviously, the peace process is no longer, uh, and there is real, there's really no peace process ongoing, but you have a lot of expertise about the position of Jerusalem in this uh, sort of long-term uh, idea of a peace process. So I was wondering, uh, paraphrasing a, a title of your book, what's the politics of Jerusalem since 1967 up to nowadays? Wow, <laughs> that's a big question. Um, I think perhaps I could start off laying some sort of foundation blocks. And one is that we have to remember um, Jerusalem isn't uh, a seaport. It isn't beside a river with a bridge over to the other side, or it isn't close to any mineral resources. It hasn't a very rich agricultural hinterland. Um, you know, Napoleon didn't bother to... Uh, um, captured Jerusalem, went straight to Acre, which was the important port on the, the, the seacoast. It doesn't have value in that kind of geostrategic way. Um, 
what it so why is it so important you have to i mean this is where you come back to religion again and the important thing to remember it's not just important to one religion it's important to three religions and it's important to that one of the oldest religions in the world judaism and two of the largest religions in, in the world uh, christianity and islam and they are it's important to all three at the same time currently you know has been in the past and also now it's important in their rituals and their eschatology uh in some importance of the, the, the symbolic sense of uh, uh you know who 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 who, who, be, who belongs into the city and who controls the city and um without knowing that you probably will never understand why jerusalem is so being fought over and so contested. So if you bear that in mind, um, I mean, what you've really got since uh, 1967 is an attempt of, you know, it's, it's sort of the struggle between the two major communities, the Muslim communities and the, the Jewish communities, to assert their dominance in the city. And they have political parties and you know uh, secular movements to kind of to buttress it. And uh, I don't want to kind of reduce everything to religion because there's other things working as well. But it's it's what makes it kind of um, exist and an existential issue. It's not something you people can surrender. Uh, um, mineral. You know, uh, mineral resources can be traded for access to other areas, but to trade uh, an important mosque uh, is not so e not so e easy to do. You can't negotiate around that. So there are some kind of major stumbling blocks when you deal with religious issues, and so what we've really got is an attempt to uh, by Israel to envelop the city. To absorb it into the Israeli polity, and there's been degrees in which they've done that. Sometimes much more assertively, other times in a more cooperative and accommodating way. Um, but certainly since the collapse of the peace negotiations, it's been done much more assertively. The, the big question really is: is uh, how come the Palestinians are still managing to hang on? despite what is overwhelming military and economic superiority by the Israelis, what's holding them back? What is, why don't the Israelis just get rid of uh, all the religious leaders and acquire all the, the property? And it's because they, these things have very deep roots and very broad roots that spread across the world. Uh, and so there's international support for certain positions uh, and so the Israelis are bumping up against something that's not just the Palestinians, it's the Palestinians plus a hinterland and plus the international community. There's a kind of, it's a, it's a big risk for them politically to push too, too strong. Every now and then they, there's an opportunity to uh, um, uh, establish them or consolidate their position more strongly, um, but uh, it's, it's not that easy for them because of the kind of the, the depths, the religious, the depths in terms of the deep roots, and but also the, the breadth of interest in what's going on in Jerusalem across the globe. It's interesting to see the various layers of, of this conflict um, and the complexity of understanding that religion is important, but this is not a religious conflict. Uh, or at least religion is an important component, but it's not just about religion, which unfortunately is often the the, the narrative that is used by uh, media, pundits, uh, and nowadays plenty of websites, uh, which I personally follow, uh, certain Facebook pages that are essentially pointing out that, well, this is the conflict, therefore one religion has to take over the others. And uh, as you mentioned, I mean, you can see that through... Uh, Israeli politics, um, and so I really don't want to go into it, but I think I, I think it's worth asking a question because uh, in recent times, uh, exactly because of the collapse of the peace process and peace, the peace talks, 
uh, and also the sort of radicalization of Israeli politics, we saw a reemergence of a number of movements and very strong movements that aim at the re rebuilding the third temple over what is the Al-Aqsa Mosque complex. And they're gaining traction. Their voice is no longer uh, sort of a niche and minimal, but actually you can hear them through social media and also through uh, larger media platforms. So I, I was wondering if this is a further obstacle or if still this is some sort of a, something that can be easily uh, gotten rid of. Yeah. Now, this is a very serious development. For about 40 years, the occupation has been about 55, 56 years, uh, for about 40 years, there was a kind of de facto dual administration around some of the key religious sites. So you had a kind of Jordanian controlled um, uh, Muslim council, which was running the, the Muslim groups, and they would cooperate with the Israeli secular authorities about access, about management, uh, and there would be kind of a, a reluctant uh, but a tacit agreement between those uh, the Israeli authorities and this, the Jordanian-funded um, but Palestinian-staffed uh, uh, religious um, uh, hierarchy. Following the collapse of Oslo and the rise of the uh, the, the religious rights in in Israel, um, uh, sorry, and that dual administration. Um, uh, very much laid down that uh, is, Jews were not allowed to enter into the Al-Aqsa Mosque to pray or to the Haram compound to, to pray. Uh, but that now has gradually been eroded and, um, and, and that has been increasingly eroded partly because of its um, Jordanian and Palestinian differences and they've not held uh, a common line on, on, on how to deal with, with this. Um, but it's also eroded because the international community has not been uh, as um, alert to the implications of, of what is happening. Um, and there is a sense in which um, the, the peace process raised the possibility that large Israeli colonies, settlements would have to evacuate, would have to move out as part of the deal. Most Israelis were very concerned that this would also apply to Jerusalem. So, you know, uh, what was happening in the West Bank might then seep into what is going to happen in Jerusalem. And there was kind of a tacit understanding that's a red line. They might sacrifice Gaza, the West Bank, in terms of territorial acquisition, but not Jerusalem. Jerusalem was not going to be returned in any way whatsoever. So that sense of focusing on Jerusalem and uh, and and consolidating, strengthening the Israeli control of Jerusalem uh, kind of permeated um, Israeli society and kind of legitimized those people who were trying to say, well, look, we've got historical connections there, where the, 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 the rituals of, uh, of, of our religion are based around some of the, these key sites. Um, why are we being uh, forbidden to pray in this very important uh, place for our religion? And so it became a religious issue, but also became a vehicle for nationalist uh, expansion. And, you know, under uh, Donald Trump, uh, kind of, I don't, the, the, these groups were not being given the green light, but they were certainly not being held in check because Netanyahu at the time felt there was an opportunity to, to push things forward. And I do re recall there was a time um, in around that 2015, when the pressures in the Haram al-Sharif were getting huge, parties of about 30 or 40 Israeli settlers were visiting the Haram al-Sharif every hour, and they were being escorted by Israeli police. So you've got then maybe between 50 and 80 people moving around the Haram al-Sharif uh, compound. And then Palestinians trying to kind of surround them so they wouldn't be able to start praying. And this was really building up. And I remember um, 
uh, being told by Jordanian uh, security people that King Abdullah got on the phone to John Kerry and said, look, if you're worried about ISIS in Iraq, but don't do anything about these characters uh, invading the Haram al-Sharif, you're going to get ISIS not only in Amman, you're going to get ISIS in, in, in Jerusalem. You're playing with fire by letting these people uh, uh, disrupt the kind of status quo or the modus vivendi. And uh, Kerry obliged Netanyahu to back down. Uh, he, you know, um, but under Trump, Netanyahu was trying again. Uh, and uh, this time the, the Jordanians were better prepared uh, uh, but uh, it was still a possibility. And if, for example, there'd been a, a, a war with Hezbollah in the north or some uh, collapse of Lebanon to distract the world, it may have opened up the possibility for um, a further Israeli takeover of the Haram al-Sharif. You know, just bear in mind what's happening in Hebron with the incremental step by which the Israelis have expanded their supervision of certain areas into basically taking over the whole mosque and allowing Palestinians to pray at certain times. We're seeing the early steps of that. It may be reversed, but we're certainly seeing the beginning of that route, the incremental steps of, of uh, circumscribing Palestinian access and monitoring and regulating it to such an extent that it becomes an Israeli decision who goes on and what takes place there. And, you know, we haven't yet got to that end point, but it's very close. And I, 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 uh, I think this will be even for non-religious Palestinians, young, young Palestinians who are much more interested in TikTok than they are in the Quran, you know, would still be very alarmed by this. Because Palestinians don't want to go down in history as the Arabs who lost, who surrendered or lost uh, the holy places of Islam. That there is, not, is something that they do not want to be seen as. I interviewed a young Palestinian woman at the very beginning of the podcast and uh, she was channeling more or less the same kind of thoughts. Like she was not very interested in uh, many aspects of the conflict, but she also mentioned clearly that there were certain lines, despite, you know, actually this, uh, this guest was not even a Muslim, but uh, that certain lines could not be crossed because they represented also Palestinian identity at, at large. And, you know, they, want, they went beyond uh, uh, that and, and I found fascinating that you mentioned that because really it's something that it's uh, it's tangible. Uh, people may be or maybe not religious, but they see that as a as a red line not to be crossed. And I was wondering to this extent if you think that uh, when Trump, uh, um, President Trump, moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, if this move had, the, had any uh, direct uh, sort of um, uh, impact on how these uh, particular um, right-wing religious uh, Jewish extremists saw themselves and felt entitled to slowly and incrementally taking over uh, religious uh, oli sites, particularly the, the Aram al-Sharif complex. Yeah, I think it, it's actually slightly mixed. On one hand, it, it definitely legitimized uh, an expansionist uh, viewpoint, which included the holy sites, um, it, 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 you know, gave um, it sort of vindicated Israel's position that you know, since 1967, uh, Jerusalem is part of Israel in the same way Tel Aviv is. It's that's you know their kind of uh, more more uh, maximalist position. Um, and, you know, having the recognition of the biggest power in the, in, in the world, uh, you know, supporting that um, gave them a lot of uh, impetus and, and satisfaction. I think because the whole issue of where is Jerusalem, what are its borders, 
is actually more complex than Trump realized. Just moving the embassy didn't perhaps solve the issue. It actually created a lot more issues. And we can see that because the, you know, the US is trying to open a consul, uh, consulate in East Jerusalem, but is having a lot of problems uh, in, in doing that because there's a lot of opposition from the Israelis. Um, and uh, because the Israelis know that if uh, the US open a consulate in, in East Jerusalem, it's completely reversing the recognition that Trump's thought he had given to uh, the Israeli view that East Jerusalem is part of, 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 of Israel. Um, so, the, and but the problems are around is it wasn't clear what Jerusalem is he talking about? Is he talking about the the wall, what we call the Israelis called the separation barrier? Is he talking about the municipal uh, um, boundaries which were extended to the borders of Ramallah or to an area that just included Israeli residency? Um, was he talking about the the kind of Jewish core of Jerusalem, which includes, it's a modern core, includes what um, I've identified as the Eruv border, which is the, the border where um, religious Jews can um, carry out normal daily activities on the, on the Sabbath without transgressing any uh, biblical laws. So there's, Eruv, there's an Eruv border, um, which extends from West Jerusalem into East Jerusalem. Is that the border they're talking about? It's not clear, therefore, uh, what responsibility the embassy in the US embassy, US embassy in uh, Jerusalem, what is its geographical area of responsibility? And where does the, 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 the part of the diplomatic corps that was looking after the West Bank and Gaza, where does that stop? And it raises a lot of issues, you know, and can the ambassador drive uh, without changing his flags? Because there's this protocol around flags that you put on your 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 car from one part of Jerusalem to the other part or not. You know, there's lots of kind of diplomatic niceties which were not sorted out. It's interesting that this issue isn't closed. And while one or two embassies from other countries have have moved, I think two or three, there's not been that stampede, uh, which I many Palestinians feared. Uh, and that's because people realize it's more complex than that. And it, it would open up a Pandora's box of, um, you know, if East Jerusalem is part of West Jerusalem, does that mean East Jerusalemites have entitlement to property in West Jerusalem, uh, both that they owned or their grandparents might have owned, or that they may wish to buy. You know, what sort of rights does it give them? So it's very, it's a un, it's a kind of half baked idea, really. I suppose the Trump administration have uh, really realized the complexities of diplomacy and all of this question of the various constituents and the borders. Yeah. of uh, uh, also like consular activity and power, given that Jerusalem had its own consulates built during the Ottoman times that retained essentially their own sort of consular uh, geographical sort of um, authority. And they're, they're not uh, the same as, uh, you know, the consulates that you may have in Tel Aviv or uh, in other parts of the country. I mean, they are unique to Jerusalem. Uh, you know, the British consulate, the Belgian, the Italian, I mean, and th these are going back the Ottoman time, which brings me back to the question of the status quo that you mentioned earlier. So the status quo of the holy places uh, is this sort of idea that international powers and, of course, uh, Palestinians and Israelis nowadays recognize that there are holy sites that are cherished and sort of protected by, you know, laws, international laws, and the status quo was set by the Ottomans already in the 17th, 18th century. The latest was obviously in the 19th century. Is that still a valid concept to protect religious sites? Is that still a valid uh, uh, sort of arrangement that allows people to feel sort of part of Jerusalem and for those uh, sites to be protected? 
I think it's changed, but it's also there is a lot of continuity. And I, I know you've done your own quite a lot of research on the the antecedents of the consular role in 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 Jerusalem. But I think it was in 2019 when Emmanuel Macron visited um, Jerusalem, and there was a diplomatic uh, uh, kind of altercation around the protocol of him entering. A, a French a religious site which turned out to be under French protection. Now, I didn't know about the kind of long-standing connections and responsibilities that France had for this, but they, the French were furious that the Israelis presumed that they could enter as the uh, hosts of, of, uh, of, of this site. When the French said, you know, we've been here controlling this site for over 150 years. What are you talking about? And so uh, there's that continuity still there, and it has the potential to both um, inflame things, but it also um, it does uh, prevent um, a power like Israel to act with impunity. It, it realizes it's up against, you know, um, uh, legal constraints, which are, have, have, have these deep roots. What has happened is that much of that international involvement is very different now. And, um, you know, if you recall in my book, you mentioned earlier, very kindly, uh, Jerusalem Unbound, I sort of did a very superficial analysis of Jerusalem on social media as compared to other holy cities or to other divided cities or other great cities. and. And sort of try to you know show graph at uh, um, the how many websites were you know about Jerusalem as opposed to about say uh, Najaf or about Rome whatever, and um, you know the what's happened is that instead of international engagement being channeled through state representatives, it's much broader than that. It is social media, but it's also through the diaspora and the religious communities. You know, you can travel, you can communicate so much more quickly. So what happens in Jerusalem is immediately, you know, say the Armenian quarter is being under threat. Immediately the Armenians in Los Angeles are up on the up in arms. Yeah, you know, straight away. OK, um, I'm not sure what the Kardashians are, but uh, uh, others would be. Yeah, um, they so there's this direct involvement of the, the religious, religious diaspora in what's happening, as well as, as the national, the ethnic diaspora. And then there's the, the pilgrimages and tourism. And people know about Jerusalem, they visit it, uh, either through, you know, some personal journey that they're having, or through, you know, just uh, uh, that their travel experience. And it's uh, so there's a very strong connection right across the world and i'm not sh so sure I, I would be interesting to see whether the international visitors to jerusalem are perhaps greater than other big tourist sites the kind of the globalized nature of it from people from south america from south africa from korea uh, from north america i mean it's very very comprehensive the range of people who visit Jerusalem. And again, it's partly the religious aspect of, of, of it that, that brings them there. And I think that's much broader than, say, I mean, you know, Paris, probably the next big tourist thing. I'd be interested to, to look at a breakdown at the nationalities that come to visit Paris as opposed to the ones that visit Jerusalem. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You just mentioned something and it made me think about uh, the potential for a sort of a breakthrough in this kind of tourism. Now that Israel has signed uh, agreements uh, with a number of Arab countries, I wonder if these Arab countries may actually impact, uh, the, you know, with their presence, uh, sort of a, not just, you know, idea of peace talks, but also the city, the fact that uh, one day when uh, COVID-19 will be over, we may actually have uh, uh, Emiratis or Qatari or more Moroccans and, and others visiting the city. I wonder if this may have an impact on sort of the, the balance of relations in the city? Uh, that's a very good point. Um, at the moment, there isn't the sort of flood of uh, Gulf Arab states visitors. Um, and the, this whole um, uh, trend of uh, great, greater connections between Israel and the Gulf Arab states is really a sign of the weakness of the Palestinian leadership uh, and their inability to kind of keep the the Arab states mobilized uh, and 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 um, uh, close you know keep them to adhering to the various motions resolutions that the Arab League has passed on this. So it's it's, it's a sign of um, Palestinian weakness in the Arab broader Arab community. Um, you know people who try to look at things more positively, we'll say, well, look, surely this interaction between Arabs and uh, Israeli Jews is a a good thing. And and I think, you know, on a superficial level, anything that keeps the uh, dialogue going is a good. But I think it's also a little bit naive um, because, you know, it is very clear that without international support, the line that the Palestinians are wishing to hold in Jerusalem will be eroded. Uh, and if the Arab states are going to er- erode that line, then you'll get Indonesia and uh, Southeast Asia eroding it as well. You know, And um, uh, that will sort of lead to a kind of domino effect. And, uh, and the Palestinians may end up in a situation where East Jerusalem becomes like Jaffa in Tel Aviv, uh, an Arab cultural ghetto within a larger Israeli city. And uh, um, it has not going to happen yet. And I, I think there's what we've seen around the demonstrations around that particular quarter. I don't know if your listeners will know about it, Sheikh Jarrah. There's been a very dramatic pushback, you know. And if you go to Sheikh Jarrah now, Instead of seeing, uh, you know, quiet 
uh, suburb is actually a war zone with with checkpoints and patrols and armored cars and uh, uh, it's not at all the peaceful kind of uh, city that you would imagine. It is a, a front frontier. The frontier is being re-established. So there, are, there's many. It's not easy to see at this moment what the main trends are because there's many currents uh, flowing, and some of them are with you know building up to a general direction, but other than others are. Uh, going against each other and creating a kind of just turbulence and we don't quite know what's really going to happen in the next I can't really characterize the current situation easily because it's very mixed I guess there was a point in time where it was possible to speculate uh, about the future uh, given the context but nowadays things are moving so rapidly and there's so many different interactions happening, not just quickly, but also uh, surprisingly, again, you know, signing agreements between Israel and the Gulf was uh, not really a big surprise, but it happened so fast that obviously it reshuffled, uh, you know, various ideas and also the Palestinians themselves found, uh, found themselves in a position of, uh, you know, isolations vis-a-vis -vis, uh, uh, Israel and their ideas about uh, Sheikh Jarrah and obviously the Palestine in general. But I wanted to ask you something about borders because we talked about it earlier and Sheikh Jarrah essentially is, does represent this idea of uh, internal borders within Jerusalem, invisible. So I, I remember in your book, Jerusalem Unbound, where uh, I think was, you know, finally someone talked about, well, there are borders in Jerusalem, hard, soft borders, and I remember you also had this idea of uh, scattered borders, like uh, around uh, religious sites and religious communities. So I was wondering if you can give us a sense of uh, what these borders are and how people engage and interpret these different borders within Jerusalem. I have to be clear that uh, the very last few years, I, I'm not so... Um, uh, familiar with some of the changes um, and my my views on this are still slightly based on research I carried out in you know in the 2000s um, but uh, I mean what I mean by this is that you have you clearly got residential borders you've got the Israeli settlements or the colonies and you've got the Palestinian neighborhoods in East Jerusalem and those are areas which at times of tension, become very clear and polarized. In times of, you know, uh, calmness, they're a bit more blurred and more porous and people travel and they use the, the parks and the shops and the post office and either side without much worry. But as soon as there's some tension, you get then um, uh, informal checkpoints appearing and people kind of keeping an eye on who's going in and out of those areas. That's the very basic internal border but there's there's others that you don't notice i mean well no sorry another very basic internal border is is this what is known as the very security borders i mean the initial security border was a ring around jerusalem which had nothing to do with the municipal borders it was entirely a military decision which roads would have checkpoints on and there was nothing and so people would be having to go through these checkpoints uh, whether they were inside the municipality or outside the municipality, they would still. So there was a kind of security border parallel to a mu political municipal border. Um, but uh, the, the other kind of borders, for example, the um, there's a kind of education border which you don't see. So in schools, in Palestinian schools in East Jerusalem, have the same curriculum as Palestinians in Gaza or in the West Bank. There's some tweaks and there've been more tweaks since uh, I, I did this research, um, which would needs updating, but the basic curriculum is the same. And in many cases, it's the, exactly the same textbooks and they just stamp the Jerusalem municipality stamp on top of the textbook. So in a way, your education border in terms of content and how it's being, um, um, you know, assessed and such is exact. It's right up to the green line. It's right up to the 67 borders. 
um, which is really bizarre when you think about it. Uh, this is the capital of the state of Israel, and yet they have an education system which um, uh, is similar to the, the people across the next the border. Um, Palestinians have the right, East Jerusalem Palestinians have the right to vote in Palestinian national elections. So in the heart of the Israeli capital, you have one third of the population with the right to vote. Not all of them are not all of them are allowed to exercise that right, but they have that right. And that is a right enshrined within an agreement between Israel and the Palestinians and the, and the PLO. And then there's other things you don't see. Parts of northern Jerusalem, the Palestinian areas, are supplied by a water company from Ramallah. They're not supplied by Israeli water company. Parts of uh, East Jerusalem are supplied by an electricity company based outside the borders of Jerusalem, not by an, an Israeli one. Um, so there's kind of, you know, basic services uh, are, in, are, are coming from different parts. You have electricity border, you have a water border, you have a, 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 an educational border. And on top of that, you have this sort of whole series of enclaves of religious um, hierarchies controlling the properties and what takes place in their properties. And these are quite extensive properties. So this is a real crisscrossing uh, of uh, what I call hard and soft borders in Jerusalem, which on one hand makes it very confusing, but on the other hand does open up some possibilities for agreement. It opens up some flexibility. And during the Oslo process, it was... Uh, it was that sort of understanding I was trying to bring to the negotiations is actually some of the, you know, the what is seen as the hard security border or the hard municipal border is not only very recent, but is also undermined by lots of other borders around education, services, elections, etc. In many of your works, you talk about uh, the future. So I'm not here to look into uh, the crystal ball and speculate about what's going to happen. But I was wondering, before we move to talk about uh, holy cities, if you have any particular thought about what might be the future of Jerusalem. Um, in answering that, can I, I just want to make a preliminary point. Um, one is um, cities are heterogeneous entities, multi-ethnic, multi-religious, hybrids, you know, of, of different uh, communities. And what Israel is discovering is what many other um, uh, states have discovered. When you assert uh, ethno-nationalist uh, ideology, it creates a counterforce which undermines your attempts to be successful in asserting that. Now, you can have this in, in uh, Belfast with Ulster loyalism. You can have this in uh, Kuala Lumpur with uh, Malay Bhumiputraism. You can have it uh, in uh, Benares with uh, Hindutva, Hindu nationalism, um, Maronite Christianity in, in, in Beirut. This assertion of a ethno-nationalist ideology creates what I call the, uh, the paradox of urban governance. There's like a immediate um, impact which negates what you're trying to do, because if the dominant community does not satisfy the, the needs of the subordinate community, they look outside the state, outside the state's boundaries for support, for money, for personnel, and they, the state comes up against a greater force than if they perhaps try to accommodate the, uh, the subordinate community, community. So in terms of what's going to happen in the future, while the population remain, remains heterogeneous, uh, Israel is going to be up against uh, resistance to what it's doing, which is probably greater than it, it imagines, because it the Palestinian community will receive support and uh, from outside. Um, and uh, it, Israel, I don't think, will have the, will, want, will not want to face the political costs of something more drastic. 
they're not going to, for example, take over the like like the, the Chinese in Tibet have taken over the, the Tibetan Buddhist hierarchy. They're not going to be able to do that. They're not going to take over the mosques of Haram Sharif and um, and 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 dismantle the uh, religious hierarchy. It's done that in inside Israel, but I don't think it can do that in the West Bank and and, and in Jerusalem. So it, it, it's going to have to accommodate in some way to a pre, if the presence, the Palestinian presence remains, it's going to have to accommodate to some, some extent this pushback uh, by the Palestinians. So while the signs are that Israel will constantly be incrementally strengthening its position, and here again I refer to the Hebron precedent, um, and though that, that precedent is being repeated very clearly. In Jerusalem, I think the Palestinians have a stronger card to play than they do in Hebron. It's just a much more international city and has much more uh, uh, um, attention, media attention and, and support for what, had, uh, for what the, pos the position the Palestinians are taking. Um, so that's kind of the general picture in, you know, in terms of what's going to happen next. I'm not very good at making these specific predictions, okay? Um, but I, I would imagine, unless there is a drastic change in the balance of power, which by which I mean Israel either faces an economic collapse or a military defeat, only that scale, I think we're going to see very much this this sort of gradual erosion of the Palestinian position, um, but not a complete ex, um, obliteration of the Palestinian position. And Israel will not quite succeed to achieve con total sovereignty in the way it wishes to, but it will be moving towards it gradually, step by step. And now I really want to move towards uh, sort of your newer work, and I guess because you're talking about all these cities, and obviously we talked about Jerusalem, the obvious question is, what is a holy city? What does make a city holy? Good question. I, I um, struggled with this one, and I, in a way I slightly cheated in answering it. <laughs> there isn't a UN committee that decides, you know, on what a holy city is. Uh, and, um, you know, if you count the number of holy places uh, in a city, well, that doesn't tell you so much because you go through, is it per capita or is it by geographical area? You know, how do you make that, those kind of calculations? And some cities perhaps were holy in the past and are less holy now. But, you know, like Salt Lake City, the Mormons, that's a, is that a holy city? And you've got an issue, um, uh of modernity and how is how is how is holiness expressed in a modern environment? We tend to associate it with ancient buildings and and um, uh, long-standing rituals. So you're absolutely right. Um, so what I did, I kind of cheated by saying, look, if any definition of a holy, if you have any definition of a holy city that doesn't have Jerusalem in it, it's not a it's not a good definition. Jerusalem's got to be in there somewhere, at the foundation of it, because it's so clearly a holy city. So what are the facets of Jerusalem which are holy, which I can identify as holy, which I can then say, OK, uh, this is how Jerusalem is holy. That's kind of the skeleton, the framework I can use to look at another one. So it's a bit of a cheat, uh, but it's, I think, works well on practical, in a practical way. So I, uh, what I did is to look around and uh, try to identify certain patterns. And one is clearly um, uh, the number of holy sites, obviously, um, and and that centrality to the religion. Uh, you know, like some cities may have lots of holy sites, but they may be not so central to the kind of foundation stories or the 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 the, the texts that are being used. So, you know, for example, in Georgetown, Penang, there's a very large, uh, the largest sleeping Buddha statue 
in Southeast Asia, but it's not where the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree and uh, uh, first was enlightened. It's not got that kind of centrality to, to it. So anyway, so a number of holy sites, then a long-established religious uh, hierarchy. I think that's important. I think, you, uh, and I mean over the centuries. So you've got a kind of uh, a, a kind of a kind of subculture of religious rituals and connections and and the responsibilities and an aura and an aura and a legitimacy that has been established over over many many uh, decades and centuries. Uh, the third one would be. Um, independent sources of finance through endowments, donations, tickets for you know entries. Uh, so like Cordoba, um, the, the the cathedral in Cordoba, which is actually a mosque as well. Um, a, the diocese of Cordoba are raking in millions in um, euros. Uh, through ticket entries, um, and these are not taxed, and so they're making a lot of money out of the, the, the building. And so that kind of thing gives them a lot of independence. They don't rely on the state for uh, all their funding. And then the fourth one would be kind of the international connections that you get through education and mostly, most important, pilgrimage. Um, people coming from all parts of the world, um, uh, you know, Jerusalem doesn't have those huge pilgrim sites like you have in India or in Najaf and Kabbalah. Yeah, they, they, it's not, uh, it's not able to do. It hasn't got the numbers, the capacity to absorb so many, like over a million people on one day. It can't do that. But uh, it certainly has throughout the year constant streams of pilgrims. And this is a very, a very important link to the city, to people's daily lives back at home. Um, so I would re regard those four as the kind of foundation stones of what is a, ho a holy city. Other cities have other specific features that you can add to that. And Jerusalem has other, you know, specific ones to do with the crucifixion, to do with uh, the Wailing Wall, and you know, etc. Um, but the the kind of trying to abstract those things into kind of four rough principles or four factors helps me then to turn elsewhere and say, well, has this city got these four? Oh, it has these four and maybe a couple of other things as well. So this is what I did. I uh, um, I. I was, you know, because of the collapse of the peace process and all the discussions around shared holy sites and such, I thought, well, look, let's see how other cities uh, have coped with conflict. Um, is there something intrinsic about the problems of Jerusalem or are there some problems that it shares with other cities? And I examined uh, quite a number of cities in general and then I narrowed it down to four or five to kind of go in, in depth. And that one, one was in uh, Cordoba in southern Spain, because here's a, a mosque that was converted to a cathedral, and there are attempts to pray in the mosque now, and so that kind of reflects lots of North Africa's um, uh, southern Spain tensions. Um, and then I looked at Bernares or Varanasi, which is the... Um, the city of Shiva, one of the holiest places in, in Hinduism, and yet 30% of the population are Muslim, and they are in, uh, embedded in the silk weaving industry, this, um, and therefore a crucial part of the economy of the city, and there's a kind of uh, accommodation between a highly um, is, you know, important city in terms of Hinduism, but a very strong economic um, case for accommodating the Muslim community. And then I looked into uh, Lhasa in Tibet. And that was very interesting in terms of parallels to Jerusalem, because here is like a city under occupation uh, from the Tibetan point of view. And how has the religion fared in the city as a result of a total 
um, Chinese dominance, the Communist Party dominance there. Um, what elements have, uh, what areas of autonomy are there in terms of religious practice and how it affects the people on the streets? Uh, and that was really very interesting. And my um, fifth comparison was actually a city which seemed to manage to cope with the conflicts, and that was Georgetown in in, in Malaysia. Uh, Georgetown in um, here, you've got at least 22 different religions crammed together on a very small island uh, uh, with feast days every on every other day there's some road that is blocked because of a procession or a festival taking place um, and you have different ethnicities uh, and even within different religions different ethnicities and uh, it's, a, it's a bewildering complex uh, society and yet they managed somehow to do it and that threw, threw up some thoughts about how cities with don't have these demographic binaries they don't have Palestinian Israeli Jew as a binary but actually have a much more complex ethnic mix maybe do not create those sort of um, tensions around religious symbolism uh, that is, there's been diluted. That eth the expression of your ethnicity has been uh, diluted and uh, through the multi dif the different religions that are available. Uh, and there's a lot of issues. I mean, I haven't got time now, but um, you know, I look into property ownership, economic inter interdependence between the different religious communities, um, the role of the external actors whether it's the UN or uh, a neighbouring state, to see how they feed into these um, uh, religious tensions. And also actually the geographical, the, 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 the town planning, the layout of the, the city, because some areas create problems by their congestion and by their complex property uh, or unclear property ownership issues, and by the fact that maybe many religious sites are on top of each other or beside each other and there's the possibility of friction is then multiplied i have one last question yeah is there anything that i didn't ask you about jerusalem or holy cities that you want to talk about i think i would say you you have uh, you need to enter into the spirits of people's feelings for these places. As an academic, you know, you look through the stats, you read the reports, you interview the elites or, or particular sectional community. And I think it's really important to spend time just living there and being part of the, whether it's Jerusalem or uh, Benares or whatever. I do remember one of the most moving um, uh, um, memorable moments at time in Jerusalem when I was walking with a friend along the walls of, of the old city and I was overlooking Silwan. So Silwan on the right, there was the Armenian quarter on the left, the Jewish quarter just in front of me and the Al-Aqsa Mosque just in the distance there. And the, the light was fading and suddenly the call to prayer came up. But, and there was... A, uh, you know, people started eating and uh, there were suddenly people rushing towards the seminaries, uh, to the yeshivas. You suddenly saw the how the city worked uh, and, and, and interacted on this focus on their daily activities. Um, and it just reminded me that this is a place where people live and they pray and they shop and they visit friends. And it's not uh, something just for academics or political scientists sort of tear apart and, and, and try and analyze. It's actually a living, breathing place. And I, I would say um, that's an important part of the research is to, to kind of capture that. This was Professor Mick Dumper at the University of Exeter, author of a large number of volumes and articles about Jerusalem, but more recently author of the uh, book Power, Piety and People, The Politics of Holy Cities in the 21st Centuries, published by Columbia University Press. Mick, thank you so much. Thank you. I enjoyed it.
Thank you for listening to the second season of Jerusalem Unplugged. Please follow us on all our social media platforms so that you can be up to date with all of the episodes of Jerusalem Unplugged, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you have a chance, please chip in just a coffee to make sure that we will be able to host all the best guests to talk about Jerusalem and all about Jerusalem. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.